Every life has a story, and every story is worth sharing. Your story, my story, and our story speak of victory and defeat, joy and sorrow, resilience and vulnerability. They are not just our story, they are Christ's story in us. They are Kingdom Stories from Down Under. Among the first questions you ask somebody when you meet them is what do they do for a living? Well, my guest tonight, uh, if you would ask her what she does for a living, among the many hats that she wears, one of them is a drone pilot and a drone instructor. Now, this is very uncommon, I'm sure, but she has the skills and she has the love to teach people into this, but she also has a heart for much, much more meaningful things as well. Uh, I won't give too much away tonight because we want to discover her story as she shares it herself. Uh, we welcome to the show Janine Wood. Welcome, Janine. Thank you. When you say that to people that you're a drone pilot, what do they, how do they react? They normally go, wow, I guess in drones. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a fancy name. It's a bit of a surprise, I think, um, for a woman to be doing that sort of work. Can you just say, I'm a pilot? And not say drone. <laughs> um, no, that wouldn't be truthful. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be. But it's it's just as important. Probably not so much in lives, but in in the task itself, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just a little drone that you know you take a couple of snapshots or videos. It's it's quite a functional um, machine. Very functional. They um, to become a drone pilot, you've got to pass nine different um, subjects. Wow. And it gets sent into um, CASA, which is the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, mm-hmm. um, along with a telephony or yeah, telephony radio operator certificate. So, yeah, it's a little bit involved. And quite a bit of money. How much does it cost to, to get a pilot, a drone pilot's ticket? I'm not sure. Different companies charge different things. So at the time we were um, contracting to a company over east. Um, and they would put on different packages for people to buy those packages, and then we'd just contract to them and do the work. But it would be in the high nine, eight, nine thousand dollars, or uh, no, two and a half, two, two and, and a half, three thousand. Yeah. And how long does it take? Um, it takes about five days of actual instruction. Yes. Um, and then depending on whether you pass the flying part, is mm-hmm. whether or not uh, you get your license. And a lot of practicing in between. They, you've got to have a minimum of five hours before you can even take the test. Okay. Wow. And you hire the drones or people buy them? Um, for ourselves, we had our own drones that we would use. Okay. But some people bring their own, depending. Nice. <laughs> ah, exciting. And this, this, this job didn't even ex- exist five years ago, did it? Or six years ago? Um, it didn't exist at the time for us anyway for for myself um it was just an extra hobby as such um in order to bring in some income while i was not earning any income oh fantastic good 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 hobby yes (laughs) yeah now the accent gives it away you are south african i am born in south africa born Born and bred johannesburg yep okay your parents uh, um, they migrated there or they had been born there as well? My father's father was a Russian Jew mm-hmm. um, and our family arrived in South Africa, spent most of their lives in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. um, but I was born in South Africa when my parents had moved back. So what was his surname, you, your great-granddad? Originally it was Rachelson. Rachelson. Um, and he changed it when he got to Africa to Roberts. Okay. But it was never actually registered. So when my parents went to go and get married, they couldn't find him in the birth registry. Yes. Because he was under a different name. Mm. So my father had it legally changed to Roberts. Yeah. And that's what we had as a surname. Nice. So you grew up in Joburg? Yes. First uh, sort of memory of childhood? Four, five, three? Um, to be honest, I don't have a, a huge collection of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I know at the age of 18 months, I fell into a swimming pool um, and my grandfather was cleaning the swimming pool and nobody realized that I'd fallen in. Um, and my mum looked out the front door and said, where's Janine? And, um, and he said, oh, I actually heard something fall in the deep end. 
and he fished me out with his swimming pool net. Um, so I nearly didn't make it. Mm. Obviously, God had other plans for me. Um, so I, my childhood was a bit, um, it was full of turmoil, if I put it like that. My parents were, um, they argued a lot. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of friction. There was domestic violence in our house. Um, my dad was an extremely wealthy man mm-hmm. and never had too much time for us as children. Mm. So he was a distant father. In the home, but not not fully present. Yes. Mm. I don't know, quite, yes, in and out the home. Um, yeah. So as childhood memories, I don't remember a lot as a child, to be completely honest. Mm. I remember my friendships um, yeah. from a very young age, and a lot of those school friendships I still have today. That's from beautiful. the age of five or six. Yes. Primary? Yes. Wow. You kept in touch with those people. Yes. Nice. How school? Um, so I was sent to boarding school at the age of 12. Um, for high school or senior? For high school. Mm-hmm. So that was from the age of 12 um, up to standard nine, which is year 11. Yeah. My parents had divorced at that age, at age 12. And um, when I went into boarding school and my reaction was pure rebellion. Yeah. Um, I was the child that other parents would warn their kids against. Yeah. Um, I was the child that ran away from school, that um, smoked through the school bathrooms, that mm. um, climbed out the windows, that did all that sort of stuff. I was that child. Mm. Um, and then finally, at the uh, middle of my year 11 year, which is standard nine, I was finally expelled. <laughs> they, um, so they put up with you for a good three they years. They put up with me. I went to a Methodist school that was extremely religious. Mm-hmm. Um, Were your parents religious? Not at all. My, my dad um, didn't believe in God. In fact, I don't know if my mom did even at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so why Methodist college? Because they uh, had the boys. Because it school. was a private school. Yeah. It was private, um, and also because when my parents divorced, my mum went moved down to Durban. Mm-hmm. My father was in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. and the school was closer to Durban, so I could be closer to my mum because she was. My father had got custody of all four of us. So there were four of you. There were four of us. I was the youngest of four. So why why did he get custody? Um, because my mum and dad had married very very young. My elder sister was. Uh, my mum was 15 or 16 when she had my first, my eldest sister, Sharon. Yes. Um, and by the time I was born, I was the fourth child at the age of 24. Yeah. Um, and my mum had never worked. Mm. So, so she couldn't sustain it. She, she couldn't take care of us financially, where my dad at that time, he was a multimillionaire. And he wanted custody? Um, or I don't... He I, felt responsible? I felt, I think he felt like he had no choice. Um, my two eldest um, sisters had already left home. Mm-hmm. So it was only myself and my second sister just above me. So there's four sisters? Yes. Wow. And so, yes, he got the custody of both of us. Mm-hmm. But you were in, uh, obviously, in uh, boarding school. So you would see him on the weekends? or No. So I was six hours away mm-hmm. from where we lived in Johannesburg. Um, so I, you could, we were only allowed to go home once a term which was um, four times a year. Yeah. Um, unless, of course, your family lived anywhere closer. So if you lived closer, you could see your family more often. We had weekly borders. We had daily borders. Yes. But for me, I was in uh, boarding school full time. Um, and most of the time, um, I was um, gated. We used to call it gated when we went to light out on the weekends for whatever it is that I got into trouble for. <laughs> um, and there were times where um, my father was traveling yeah so i was i just had to stay at school mm. um, so with mom come and visit you no my mom never came to visit us and you never went home to her either yes i did when i was allowed mm-hmm. when i was allowed yes did she remarry um she dated my elder sister's boyfriend ex-boyfriend for a number of years and um about 25 years ago, she, or maybe 20 years ago, she remarried. She mm-hmm. became a born-again Christian, um, and she married a Christian man, 
and they've been happily married ever since. Wow. And dad? And my father passed away in 2002. Was he remarried? My father, um, he did remarry. He, My stepmom moved in a few days after my mom left. Mm-hmm. And um, she was not too much older than my older sister. So she moved in and together they had two children of their own. And she already had a child. So we were seven in the end. Mm. But not all of us living at home, of course. So your dad died of? Heart attack. Okay. 60s? He was 62. Mm, quite young. 62, 63, yes. Mm. So you get expelled from the Methodist Ladies College, so <laughs> the MLC. I, um, <laughs> so I met my ex-husband um, at the age of 14, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Um, he was at an all-boys uh, all school uh, just down the road. So he was quite a bit older than me. He was five years older. I met him when he was in his last year of school. Yeah. Um, and he went off to do national service in the army. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I continued at school. Um, so the weekend that I got expelled, I'd applied for permission to go to take leave for the weekend. Um, to be with and, him. Yes, and to go down to Durban. Mm-hmm. And on the Sunday when we were meant to come back, right. I said, no, I'm not coming back on Sunday. I'll come back on Monday morning with all the, the weekly orders. Yeah. And they said, no, you need to come back Sunday night. Mm-hmm. So I, I went back sun, uh, Monday, Monday morning. morning. So they kicked you out. And they kicked me out, yes. So um, Packed your bags? Uh, I had to pack up my bags straight away. So I had a piano teacher at school mm-hmm. um, who was my mother figure. She, um, my, for five years, my father paid for piano lessons. Yeah. And I never learned to play the piano. I would go By to, choice? Yes. But you, you got counselling? Yes. I got counselling and I had, I found the mother that I never had, mm-hmm. that I always wanted. And she just loved me and accepted me. And if I didn't want to play, I didn't play. And if she you wanted chatted. to. Yeah, we just chatted, that's all. Um, so I'm still very, uh, she's still part of my life. It was a safe haven for you. It was a safe She was a safe haven. She was. She absolutely was. So you called on her? I did. And um, when I got expelled, I was so happy. I never wanted to go to boarding school. I was forced to go. Yes. All I ever wanted was to be at home. Oh. So when I got expelled, for me, it was the best thing that could ever have happened. Um, did you know that then? Yes. I always wanted that. But um, for my father, it was extremely inconvenient. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden he had a daughter at home with his new family. And of course, he told me, you know, you're a dropout, you're a loser. Nobody's ever going to want you at the school. I'll never find you a place in the school. No one's going to want you. Um, and the next day we went to a, the high school in the area where we lived. And I started the day after that. Why didn't you go to the music teacher? Um, because she was down, she stayed in Peter Marisburg, that's where she lives. And I stayed in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't an option. Okay. It was not an option. I had to leave the school immediately, leave their premises, take my stuff and leave. And, um, and then you went to a state school. And then I went to a state school, I went to a, a day school. Mm-hmm. So I went home every single day. Um, on Thursdays, I went gambling, horse racing and drinking champagne with my stepmother, because that's what she did on Thursdays. She was a lady of leisure, um, and I joined. I joined right in there, so I thoroughly enjoyed my last year of school. Uh, my my <laughs> my school marks went sky high. Yeah. From absolutely failing dismally throughout school, um, I got. I, I went through school well. I finished well. I ended well. So academically, you were very switched on. You just didn't pay attention before. Academically, I had zero. I had absolutely no desire whatsoever to be at that place. I was absolutely miserable. Um, But as soon as I was in the place where I felt I needed to be. You thrived. I thrived. I absolutely thrived. Being at home, being around family. Mm. um, So your little sister was still home? Um, I am the little sister, remember? I'm oh, the youngest. So, so the, I have two little brothers and a stepbrother. Okay, so those were born and they were now at home. Yes. So, so you, my seven, my, when I when I met my stepmom, mm-hmm. she had a six-year-old son, mm-hmm. um, Robin, who was um, brain damaged from a previous marriage. 
Um, and so he was my little stepbrother, but then I had two younger brothers from them. Um, and so there were four children now in the family? So three. actually there were just the three, of, well, yes, the four of us at home. So Robin was sent to a school for special children, mm-hmm. um, also in Durban when we were in Johannesburg, so we didn't see him. Mm-hmm. We saw him from time to time. Um, and my two little brothers were just at home, so I was I was the best babysitter. I was the big sister who could arrive and look after the little brothers. Yeah. Um, but on my last exam at school, I left that night and I flew down to Cape Town, which is where my ex-husband's pa- uh, parents were running a bakery. Mm-hmm. And I moved in with them the day I finished school. And he was still in the army? He had finished the army and he had um, he had worked a bit on the mines mm-hmm. and then he had moved down to um, Oatsman where his parents owned a bakery and his dad was ill with cancer and the plan was for us to move to Oatsman and go and take over the bakery yep. so his parents could do whatever they needed to do. Mm. Um, so I started working the day after, literally. Landing. Yes. Learning the trade. And the idea was to stay there, learn the, the trade, and then get married. Yes. And um, live a, a happily ever after. That's If there the is such thing. That was the so, plan. finished year 12. Now you're with your uh, boyfriend. Uh, did you marry him? Um, so, I lived with his parents. We were not allowed to live together at all um, until we were married. Um, and so, I, he had some values? Or he his had parents? no values. His no. parents had values. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I married him the very next year. Okay. So the next year we were married. You were allowed to be together after that, right? Yes. <laughs> or you were um, together before that we anyway. Actually, um, we moved to George, and we George is close to Oatsun, yes. so in the Cape, and we moved there. That's We stayed there for um, about 18 months to two years before my eldest daughter was born. Mm-hmm. How is life then? You were working at the bakery, long hours. We had left the bakery, so as soon as we got married and we moved, we um, decided the bakery was not for us. The bakery was sold. His parents sold the bakery before his father passed away. Um, And we moved to George, where I worked um, for a car rental company first, Mm -hmm. and then for an air compressor company. Nice. And he was doing flying flyout. He was at he mining. He continued in the bakery actually. Oh. oh. He um he managed to get a job with a job with Pick and Pay, which is like um, it's like Woolworths. Yeah. He became the bakery manager there. Okay. And actually, that's when things started really falling apart. So. What um, was going on? So he um, right actually even from the start really he used to drink a lot. Mm-hmm. But because we never lived together, it was all the things that I didn't know beforehand. Yes. Yeah. And um, it was only once we got married that all these little things started coming out mm. and the cracks started showing very quickly. Um, and he would um, often, and I'd say often because I, I knew only about the ones that I knew about and I didn't know about the ones I don't, but yes. he would um, be quite open about people that he was just having an affair with quickly here and there and everywhere mm-hmm. um but i was pretty much stuck and also not um only that but the mental abuse started you mm-hmm. know, why are you so fat your teeth are so far apart all these um little things of pulling me down started mm-hmm. and that's where all these little lies started becoming my truth because that's what you believe after you get told for a certain period of time he broke you. He slowly but surely broke me down, yes. Mm. So I did leave him. So um, you were enslaved in that relationship? Did 100%, you, yes. You couldn't see a way out for a long time? I couldn't because I didn't know how I'd manage on my own. And you had a daughter? Um, I had a daughter. I was also told about three weeks before we got married, um, my mum, along with some friends, had said, you are crazy if you marry him. We had just found out that he'd been with his boss's daughter and um, and everyone said, you are crazy. You know, my mum said he will never change. If he hasn't changed now, he's never going to change. Um, but for me, I think I just wanted to prove everyone wrong. So mm. I married him anyway. 
And um, and I think I was always a bit like that. If you said I couldn't, yes, I could. Yeah. Um. So I was always very determined. Stubborn. Extremely stubborn. Strong willed. Very strong. You took that from mom or dad? Probably a bit of both, <laughs> but probably more from my father. Yeah. He was a very hard man. He was yeah. extremely hard. Yeah. He um yeah he was very very hard. So where did you go when you left your husband? Um. So for the first when Samantha turned a year, I went to I flew to uh, Durban to my to my mom's place, mm-hmm. and it was while I was there that I said to her, I think I've made a mistake. You know, I don't think, I don't think I should stay. And she tried to talk me into staying with her. Yes. But after a few weeks, I realized, no, I can't actually manage without him. I, I have to go back. And it, it wasn't even Was him. he chasing you? Yes, he was. Every day on the phone, he would phone and say, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. I won't do it again. Um, and so it's, it's a huge amount of money. So what broke the deal? How, what, what made you leave him? Was it because he had an affair or was he abusive to you? He, he, both. Both. He was mentally, physically abusive towards me. Um, and about, well, when Samantha was three, I fell pregnant with Tyler, my youngest daughter. Or my second daughter at the time. She went back to him. I was, I stayed with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually stayed with him when I found out I was pregnant again. Yeah. Um, and when I was eight months pregnant, we had had some friends around at the house. It ended up in a drunken brawl and he literally hit me down the driveway. He just punched me and I went straight down our driveway and I went into labor the next day. Mm. And I think in my head, that was it for me. Yeah. I, but it wasn't the final. I wasn't at the end of myself. Mm. Um, I had Tyler. Um, and within two weeks, we moved down to Durban. I'm sorry, not Durban, to Paul in the Cape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that we were in a really bad place. So I went to a church in the area, knocked on the door, and I asked the pastor if I could please come and see him. We needed some help. And um, he said, he looked through his diary, and he said, mm, maybe in about two weeks' time. And um, I went home, and that night, Pierre disappeared. He had opened a pizza place with his friend. He went out on that Sunday, on the Saturday, and I didn't see him again till the Thursday. And um, on the Wednesday night, I was sitting just listening to the radio. I was breastfeeding Tyler. She was about six weeks old. And I heard this lady who had spoken about her husband who had abused her time Mm. and time again. And she said one day she just decided he that was the last time he was going to come home and beat her. And she found the heaviest bars in her house. She picked it up and she beat him. And she beat him to the point that he went to hospital. And she said that was the change for us. My husband never laid a hand on me again. And I sat all night thinking about what was the heaviest item I had in my house. To bang him. And what I was going to do to him when he came home and abused me again. And he walked in the next morning. I was sitting on the couch in the lounge and I was just wearing his T-shirt. I had the baby in my arms. And he walked in. He was still staggering. I hadn't seen him for four days. And he walked in. He came over to kiss me and I pushed him away. And the keys from the... I grabbed the car keys out his hand and he pulled them back so I was bleeding on my hands. And then when I stood up, he took me by the throat and he held me against the wall. But I had already decided that was it. And um, from the commotion, Samantha came through. She was just through and she was saying, what's going on? And of course, he had me against the wall. Who came in? My Samantha, my eldest daughter. How old was she? And that is her first memory. She was three. Three. She was three and a half. First memory of that. She remembers that like it was yesterday. I um, I took the keys from mm. him and I went next door at six o'clock in the morning because that's the time he came home. I knocked on the door. I'd never met the neighbor. Yes. And he came to the door, really confused to see this lady in just a T-shirt, blood on my face from wiping my tears, baby in my arm. And I just said to him, can you please take me to the airport? And he said, well, should I phone somebody? For-? And I said, no, 
I said, I'm actually thinking more and you clear. Took, you took the, the other child with you? I, no, I just had the baby in my arms. I'd just gone to the neighbor. I said to him, I've never been so clear-minded ever in a very long time, hmm. but I need to go to the airport. And he said, oh, I'm getting dressed for work, and then I'm going straight into Cape Town so I can drop you on my way. And I went back and I phoned my mum, who was absolutely shocked to hear from me because I'd never wanted to tell anyone I'd failed. I never, she never knew the extent yes. to what the abuse was. And I just said, Mom, you need to beg, borrow or steal. I don't care how. But today I have to get on the next aeroplane out of here. Otherwise, I'm going to do something I'm going to regret for the rest of my life. Mm. And she phoned me back um, probably half an hour later. And she said, you can get on a flight in two hours. Where was he? Um, he was just following me around, actually. Um, even while I was on the phone to my mom saying those days, she still had the phone attached to the wire. Yes. And we lived in a very small uh, little place. And so this telephone could literally walk around the whole place. And I was standing in my room throwing stuff in for the kids. Yeah. And he was just standing with his hand against the wall in the doorway watching me. And he was still miming and I just took the top of that telephone and I just remember hitting him as hard as I possibly could on the head. And um, I packed the bags as soon as our nanny arrived. Um, I asked her to quickly go to the school because that was just around the corner from us. Go and pick up everything for some, you know, Sam um, and get back. And when she came in, I just took off my wedding, my wedding rings and I said, I can't pay you. You can keep my rings. You can take any of my clothes. I'm out of here. And I took both my children and we were on the next flight out. Mm. And we flew to Johannesburg. So he didn't stop you? He couldn't stop me. And also he was still, he wasn't. He was drunk. He was still drunk from the yeah. night before. Um, so we arrived in Johannesburg and um, my mum said never will she forget that. That look of these, these girls on the escalator, myself and the baby in my arm and... Um, Sammy on my hand and of course because he had hit me in the mouth I couldn't even close my mouth so it was a very big shock for her to see us alive mm. but that was the start of my life I feel mm. the first How time I gained 20, a bit of control 25, 26 um, at that time I was 23 mm. I was 23 because Samantha was 3 and I'd had her when I was 20 wow What a story. What a story. So you, you, you're now with your mom, I looking for a new place. I stayed with my mom. Um, I was with her for about three months. I'd found a job. Mm -hmm. um, my boss was really kind. He sold me his car, um, which he allowed me to pay off through my salary. So I had a car. Yeah. I was with my mom. I saved my money. And within about three and a half months, I had my own little place. I moved in there with my little girls. Mm -hmm. And I was in there. For what were you working? Um, I then got a job at IBM Computers. Wow. And who was looking after the children? They were both with the daycare mother. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that was the start of things going much better. I was earning a very good salary. I had a very good job. Mm -hmm. um, and I was training people through my work. So you were very, um, very good with the skills. You could gain skills very quickly. You could learn things. You didn't have any education in computing, have you? No, actually, when I left school, I really had a heart to be a teacher. That's mm -hmm. all I ever wanted to do was be a... So you made sense of things and could explain them quite easily. I could. I could. When I was in um, Muscle Bay, I did have a very brief job with a computer company mm -hmm. and they needed us to train the people who were arriving from other countries um, just how to do basic computer skills. So okay. I became a teacher with absolutely no skills of my own. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I was with IBM for a couple of years. Yep. And then I met Andy. So I met Andy through a mutual friend. Mm -hmm. um, I lived, she lived next door to my mum and Andy lived next door to her mother. And we were introduced. What was his uh, story until that moment? Um, Andy had um, always, he, well, he was first, he was an international rugby player, so he hadn't settled down. Um, oh, he was a rugby player? Yes. Wow. But he also, um, he had 
finished Bible school and mm-hmm. he was full-time in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And then he um, had to go to South Africa. It was either go to South Africa and complete his trade there or go to the army. He was from Zimbabwe? He was from Zimbabwe. He was born in Malawi. He was mm-hmm. schooled in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went to South Africa, finished his trade, and then went to Bible school. Finished up Bible school and Rama, which is the church he was part of, sent him back to Rama, Zimbabwe to work full-time in the ministry. Okay. When he met you? No, that's where he met his first wife. Oh. So he met her. They moved back to South Africa. And did you know him? Then no, no, I never okay. knew him at that time. Okay. So he was married for not very long. Not very long. His wife finished university and left him for her own life. So he just literally paid for her university and then she went on her way. Mm. Um, and then he... He stayed in he stayed in South Africa, and I met him six months after they were divorced. Mm-hmm. So you were introduced at a party or a small house. We were introduced at um at the at the Rainbow Waterfront, which is mm-hmm. just like I suppose like Hillary's. Okay, nice. <laughs> and was there a spark? It was love at first sight. It was. It was for both or for both of us. Wow. So um, Andy and I, so we were introduced that evening. Yeah. And we danced. We talked all night. Mm-hmm. We danced all night. We talked all night, and then I gave him my phone number, and I left. Yes. And he got to his car at two o'clock in the morning and looked for my phone number in his pocket and realized the number was gone. He lost. So he had got home when he realized it was gone. So he drove back there, and he got the guard to come and try and help him find the number. He was on his hands and knees looking. Um, and he couldn't find the number. But he remembered that I worked for IBM. Mm-hmm. So on the Monday, he phoned IBM and he said, um, may I speak to Janine? And they said, sure, which one? We have seven. <laughs> and he said, I'm not sure, but maybe put me through to the first one. And when they put him through to this lady, he said, oh, hi, Janine, it's Andy. And she said, yes, what What can I help you with? <laughs> he realized it was the wrong, wrong one. So um, actually that week I was on training. I was at a different premises training some some clients. And um, so by the time he got to the fourth one, he was too embarrassed to ask Sorry. if it was me. So he waited um, for after hours and then he contacted Maxine and he said, please, can you just give me Janine's phone number? Um, and when he phoned me and I answered him, there was such relief. He said, finally, oh. he said, hi, Janine, it's Andy. And I said, oh, hello. And immediately he, he yeah. yeah. Um, so he came to a dinner party two days later, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, yeah. How long before you were married? Um, about six months before we were married, maybe a year. No, about, not quite a year. So he was quite uh, in, in, into Christianity at that time, or he drifted away? Um, Disillusioned. Well, for me, I'd given my life to the Lord when I was 12. Mm-hmm. And through my whole parents' divorce, um, I'd taken my life back into my own hands at the age of about 13. Um, and you know the path I went down. Um, for Andy, he had given his life to the Lord and had always loved God, always wanted to do the right thing, worked in the church, um, was the youth pastor, um, was always very, very involved in church. Yeah. But through his divorce, um, he had gone back to the church and said, look, you know, my wife doesn't want to be married and I don't believe in divorce. Yes. And I just need some help. And he um, was given a book, some tapes and said, good luck, brother. And then he was divorced. So for him, he was, he felt disillusioned. He felt he was left disappointed that he had to navigate what he never believed, never wanted. Yes. Um, and so when I met him, he was not in the church. Mm-hmm. He had never left God, but he had left the church. Mm-hmm. And we never discussed it. Um, we had never talked about the church. We never, we never spoke about Christianity. And because I was on the road that I was on, um, I was smoking. I was um, taking dares and bets with everyone to drink, who yes. could drink the most, um, and teaching him all sorts of things that... Um, yes, it, uh, it, 
it's not nothing that would glorify anybody to go down and go down that road. Mm. And um, and then one day, um, I was busy doing my pilot's license actually. So Andy um, owned his own aeroplane, and he said to me, "You know, why don't you become a pilot? I've got the aircraft. We love flying. Um, why don't you do that's something you can do?" So I decided to do my private pilot's license. Mm-hmm. And while we were we, we went down to one of the, like a garden centre. Yes. And we were walking up and down the aisles of the garden. plants and yep. we were practising my radio calls. And he said, I just need to have a talk to you. Can we just go and sit down and have some tea? And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, oh I think maybe he's going to break up with me. I wasn't quite sure what his plan was, but he was very serious. Serious. Uh, and we went and sat down there and we ordered the tea and he just looked at me across the table and he said, I can't continue like this, so I just need to tell you something. And he said, um, so Janine, back in you know 1982, I was ordained as a pastor. And of course for me, hearing that, flashing through my mind were all the things that we had just been living through. <laughs> I was thinking, I started laughing. I've done all that with the pastor. <laughs> I started laughing and I just said, Oh dear God, he yeah, I think I think God's just looking at me thinking <laughs> I definitely need some help. And of course he didn't think it was very funny, but um for me I was historically, you know, just laughing because I was just yeah. In another bubble. Yes, thinking, oh my gosh, how am I gonna explain my way out of this one? <laughs> and um but that sowed that seed back into my heart. Um, I started I started meditating on it and started thinking about more and more about God and I kept trying to ask him questions. I kept saying, you know, Andy, tell me more about God. Tell me, tell me about God. Tell, teach me because I know he was teaching in the Bible school. He he must have had all this knowledge, and he he just said to me, never. He said, I cannot tell you anything because I'm a hypocrite. Mm. He said, if you want to know anything, go and find it, go and find yourself a church. But I'm not going to be the hypocrite. Um, and it gave me more desire than anything to know God even more. You were married at this stage? We were not quite married not then. Quite. But I had fallen pregnant. Okay. Um, and that was another reason why he felt that he was a hypocrite and that he would never, ever uh, be the one to, to talk about it. So we moved down to Durban. He he got a really good job down there. We moved our whole family down to Durban. And about two weeks later, I had Kayla, which mm-hmm. is our first daughter together. Um, Andy had adopted both my eldest girls. Yes. Um, after Pierre and I had finally got divorced, mm-hmm. um, he he agreed to sign the kids off, and so Andy immediately adopted them. And um, so we were already a family unit. Yes. And when we were living down in Durban, so Kayla was just born and his best friend that he was in the youth with, Howard, um, every day while Andy was at work, Howard would come sit with me and Howard was a pastor. Mm. And he'd sit at the end of the bed and he'd just say, how are you? I didn't even know this man. He was a complete stranger. But he just befriended me. Mm -hmm. He was just there for me. Kayla was in intensive care. Um, she was born premature. Um, she struggled with her breathing. She was in hospital. Yes, it was very. It was um, touch and go for her. Mm-hmm. We we weren't sure if she was going to be okay. And Howard just came every day faithfully. He used to come and see me, talk to me, and then he started talking about um, a trip that him and his wife had taken with their twins to Mauritius where they had um, met a wonderful man of God and their lives were upside down. Yes. And um, and so I wanted to hear more and more and more. And when I left hospital, um, Andy needed to go to Angola, I think, at that time, to go and uh, work on some aircraft that were stuck. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Howard's house three days a week where he had started a home church. Mm-hmm. And I was so hungry. For God, I could not get enough. Yeah. I, I can't even remember driving home some nights because I had a brand new baby. I was up every two hours. Yeah. But nothing was going to stop me. Absolutely nothing. It was about a 40-minute drive for me. 
Then back by myself in whatever time of night, three, four times a week, I would be going up and down the mountain to go and hear more about God. Beautiful. Um, so my life was radically, it was a radical conversion, definitely. Mm. I remember one day I took um, Kayla to school. She was just maybe two. And when I went down the stairs of the school, I met somebody that I was at boarding school with. Wow. And I looked at her and I went, wow, Joan, you've changed. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, I just hope you have. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I realized, wow. Um, and I took the opportunity to write and contact as many people as I could, people who I'd hurt Yes. And um, people who had been a really bad example to. Mm. And I asked forgiveness. And I shared what God had done in my life. And, um, Do you know when you actually got converted or was it a process more? I think it was more of a process because I'd made that decision at the age of 12. Mm. I'd physically gone up to the front and given my life to the Lord. And um, for me, that was done and dusted. But I think it. You know, looking back, hindsight is an amazing thing. And I think for me, it was more an emotional conversion than it was something that was well and true. But um, there was absolutely no denying. Um, so when Andy came from Angola? So when Andy came back, he just joined me. Um, he joined me. We were as hungry for God as each other. Yeah. And we put our lives right. We got married. We repented. We, mm -hmm. we said sorry to our parents. Um, and we put things in order. Yes. In order before the Lord mm -hmm. and in order before Man. anybody and everybody who knew us. Um, and it was good. It was really good. When did you decide to come to Australia? Um, so after that, when Kayla was, um, just before Kayla turned three. Yes. Um, everything where we were living just every single door closed down. The house we were renting was put up for sale. Mm -hmm. um, Andy's job, in four days, they, he didn't have a job. Dissipated. Um, everything, every single door that could have been closed was shut in our face and we didn't know where we were meant to go, what we were meant to do. We, um, we had met the pastor from Mauritius, uh, Mickey and Audrey Hardy from Mauritius, and they had said, well, come to Mauritius. <laughs> um, but it, we didn't feel that that's where God would want us at that time. We went to Zimbabwe. We went to um, Richard Langworthy, another pastor in Zimbabwe, the church there. And we said, Richard, maybe this is where God wants us. And after staying a week or two, he was like, guys, I don't believe this is where God wants you. But I'm not sure exactly where, where? he wants you. Yeah. And we went back to Durban. We were staying with my sister who was trying to renovate her house. And we were all staying in one bedroom. <laughs> and every day we would drop the kids at school. And then we would walk down to the beach and just seek the Lord. Just cry to him. Where do you want us? Where? It is clear it's not here. And one day Andy said, I know. I know where we're going. God has, God has spoken to me. And I said, well, Andy, you know, I'm deaf. Either he's not speaking to me, he's lost my number, or I'm not hearing. But I, I cannot hear it. You need to tell me. And he said, I will not tell you. He said, unless God tells you, we're not going anywhere because I will never have you turn around and say this was a bad idea and it was all your idea. And about two days after that, while we were down at the beach, all I kept hearing was England. In, the, in my heart of my hearts, that's all I could hear. And I just thought, no. All I know of England is Coronation Street. All these ladies with curlers in their hair <laughs> hanging out the window with their cigarettes out the side of their mouth yeah. and are just hanging out the windows. I thought, there's no way. There's no way There's that God cannot be telling me to go to England. I can't believe it. And he kept saying, I know that he's spoken to you. Janine, where are we going? And then, <laughs> then as soon as I said, I think it's England. He just started laughing. He said, yes, I knew it. I knew it. And I started crying going, why would he want us to go to England? Um, because in my head, that was what England was. Yeah. And um, within three months, and it was a miracle of how we got there, a miracle, absolute miracle how we got there. But when we did, um, Andy had chosen when he got to England, he went um, a few weeks before us and he got to the airport and he said, Lord, 
Do I go up north where my brother and my whole family is, they can take care of me? Or do I go south where I knew somebody from the church once? He was at school with him and he felt just get on the bus and go south. And he said, yeah, I stood there with my passport and I thought my brother's offered us a car, a house, everything. Yeah. But the Lord wanted me to go south and he hopped on the bus. And when I arrived there, um, we moved to a little place called Ringwood, which is on the on the outskirts of the New Forest in England. So as I was driving down, expecting Coronation Street, there were just fields of green, um, this forest where there's ponies that walk wild everywhere, little rivers everywhere. It was just, I felt like I died and gone to heaven. It was <laughs> absolutely everything opposite to what I'd imagined. Yeah. Um, and we were blissfully happy there. We absolutely loved England. Um, after two years in England, we started a little home church. Mm-hmm. And um, we just invited all our neighbors and whatever, yes, mm-hmm. on our own, but in relationship with Mauritius. Yeah. And they said, listen, we'll send guys around to you on their way to Paris, on their way to America. And the, you know, the ministry, the fivefold ministry guys would just come in and out to build you guys and help you. And, um, and we had a pastor from Kenya. Yeah. Um, Stephen Gashenga who came in. Um, we had 40, 40, 45 people that night. Um, we saw two tiny little chickens and that much rice feed 40 people with, with leftovers. And um, and from then the church was established. They said, get out of your house, move into a building. Yeah. You you need to move into a building. And um, a couple of months later they sent one of the pastors from Zimbabwe um to England, Peter McKenzie, and he came and took over as the pastor of the church. And yeah. we worked and supported and and continued with him. Mm. So was there a stigma you couldn't operate as pastors? It wasn't a stigma. It was more a um I don't believe, I don't know if it was the timing of the Lord for us. We were still doing the work of God. We weren't looking for titles. We weren't looking for position. Mm. Um, but it was also during that time that God needed to do something at Andy and I. Mm. Um, we were arguing all the time. Um, I was working full-time in the church, and he was having to go to work, which was not what he wanted to do. He, he wanted doing? to be working in the church. He was training oh. pilots. Oh, okay. Uh, he was doing the, the ground school. He was, yeah. he was working there. Um, so, you know, he wanted to be in the church doing what I was in the church and it brought a lot of friction um uh, it brought uh, a lot of challenges along our way the and kids course, adjusted okay the kids thrived. loved england yeah. they thrived in england there was just yeah and from england you came england. to australia not the, or you went back in england um so during that time um we were actually at a really rocky point in our marriage and um, Andy had the opportunity to go over to Mauritius mm-hmm. and go and work with the elders in the church there. So he took a sabbatical and off he went. And I was so grateful. My heart was so rotten uh, because I was so grateful to see the back of my husband and see him <laughs> go to Mauritius where my house could now be peaceful and, um, and we could just serve the Lord in peace. Um, but that's not how God works. Mm. Um, so while Andy was Mauritius, he was complaining to all the elders there, you know, my wife this and my wife that, and they were just saying, my brother, sorry, your wife is not here, don't, don't discuss your wife. <laughs> if you have any issues, just speak to God about your wife, but we, we don't want to hear about her. And no matter how he tried, no matter which elder he spoke to, they all told him the same thing, my brother, your wife is in England. You, you speak to God about your wife. And while I was in England... Um, I was just living my own little life and um, I phoned our pastor, Peter, and I said, Pete, maybe we can just go for coffee. And he said, yes, I'd love to know how you're going without Andy. Yeah. Let's have a catch up. And we went and had coffee in the little village and we sat down and uh, we ordered our coffee. And he said, so how, how is it going? And I said, man, it's fantastic. <laughs> I am so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy that Andy's in Mauritius. Honestly, it is just peaceful and wonderful at home. Yeah. And he just looked at me and he said, my sister, he said, your heart is rotten. 
and your attitude sucks. And he said, I can't stand it. I can't sit at this table and drink coffee with you. And he got up, took his car keys and left. And it was the first time that I really needed to examine my own heart. And it was rotten. I needed to repent. I just wasn't quite ready. The Lord took us a few more months before I was ready to just surrender. And by the time the Lord brought us back together after those couple of months, nothing could have stopped us. Mm. It, um, Andy had gone to a preaching just after that. And Mickey Hardy spoke about, and he said he, it felt like he got the keys of heaven that night where Mickey spoke about denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Jesus. And he said, I realized at that moment that I was not ready to die for you. Mm. I was, I had, I was too selfish. And he said, when I realized I needed to lay my life down and surrender my life to Jesus and lay my life down for my wife, he said, everything changed. Yeah. Everything changed for me. And God just started restoring us. It was amazing. The moment we both repented, Mm -hmm. God started working on us right where we were in England and the Mauritius. And like I said, by the time we saw each other, nothing could have stopped us. Um, and so after we stayed in Mauritius, we stayed there further to grow in the Lord, yeah. grow in the things of God and learn from the people who were way ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stayed there for nine months in the end and he stayed for six months and then he went back to work. And as soon as I got back from, while I was in Mauritius, actually, I had worked at a school um, during the time and they were busy doing homeschooling. <laughs> And when I discussed homeschooling with Andy, he said, never. You will never homeschool our kids. They will get to the end of their schooling and they will hate us because we have homeschooled them. But he was in Mauritius. I was in England when I had made this decision. How long did he stay in Mauritius? He was there for three months before I joined him. Mm -hmm. And I had phoned the, the academy and I said, I'd really like to homeschool my kids. And they said, well, you're husband and you have to sign the documentation uh you need to be in agreement and i said oh well actually my husband's in mauritius and i'd like to start straight away um so they signed me up they they gave me all the books and when i went to mauritius i had a whole suitcase just with the children's books because i hadn't told them yet yeah and we spent the, the first week in mauritius just as a family a friend of ours kindly gave us their holiday home and on the friday he said we need to talk about the kids schooling because, mm. you know, if you're going to stay... So there, you, you were going to stay in Mauritius for a while? We were going to stay there for at least a couple of months, at least three, three six months. Okay. And I said to him, Andy, I need to tell you what I've done. <laughs> and um, The school is in the suitcase. You know, even while I was on the flight, I was just thinking, you know, Lord, if you changed Pharaoh's heart, you know, who's Andy Wood? You can get through this, you know. <laughs> um, and it's amazing how God works because actually while Andy was in Mauritius, they had asked him, would he would he be the sports instructor for the children? Mm. Um, because he had uh, this rugby, rugby background. Yeah. And the curriculum of the school was the same curriculum that I had signed up for in England without knowing that. Wow. Um, it was this home education program. So when I arrived in Mauritius, as I said, we were there for a week. And when he said, it's time to talk about the school, I said to him, I've got something to tell you. You're going to be very angry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and he was for about five minutes. Um, and then he said to me, well, it's amazing how God works because this is the school that I'm working at. They're using the same curriculum. Yeah. And I have seen that the, these children change. I've seen their attitudes. I've seen how they love God. And I want that for our children. Mm. Um, so it was an easy transition. Yeah. Um, and I worked at the school, so I got a really good foundation in what and how I was doing it. And um, and then as soon as I got back to England to go and join Andy after our time there, Andy had been offered a job in Perth. Wow. Um, they said, Andy, you've got the European pilot's license. Um, you've got all these licenses, and we want that yeah. here in Perth to be able to teach our pilots here. Um, and Andy had gone all over to America, so he had exactly what they needed. But it meant that his salary would be cut in half. They would not pay our air tickets. Mm. And um, and it would 
financially there was nothing here for us and we had never been to Australia. So we started praying and saying, God, is this what you want for us? Um, <laughs> we weren't sure at the time. Everybody was going, you're crazy. It's Australia. Of course you should go. Yeah. And we were thinking, we'd rather be where God wants us mm. than be in Australia without God. And then we were in trouble. Um, so by this stage, you were quite mature in your Christian walk. We had been around the block a few times, definitely. <laughs> we had grown a little bit every time. Um, and by the time we made the decision, we said, we feel peace in our hearts. We had contacted the guys in the church and they said, go for it. Go for it. There's nothing stopping you. And we just felt like if we went, we just wanted that support. And um, we were, there was nothing financially viable for us to come over here. Um, but I said, Andy, let's just apply. Let's tell them apply for our visa. We know people have waited years. Yeah. And five weeks later, our visas arrived. And they said, we can book you at the end of the month. And that was not what we um, ever expected, ever. So you had to pack up. Um, Andy came over first. Mm -hmm. um, he stayed with one of the guys who he was instructing with. So this young guy, Wayne, was actually in Andy's flight school in England. Oh. And when he came back, he had told his bosses about Andy, who had wow. then tracked him down. So when Andy got here, he stayed with Wayne's parents in Lansdale. Mm -hmm. And Andy said, look, you know, we've got somewhere to stay. Just I'll try and find a house. And everything just fell into place. I arrived a few weeks later with the kids. What year is this? And we arrived in 2006. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> Fast forward. Fast forward. Um, to today. So um, after being here, so our daughter's now, Samantha is 32. Um, she has two little boys. I have two grandsons. She's married to an Australian. Beautiful. Um, Tyler is married to an Australian. They live over in New South Wales. Are they all in the Lord? Um, all my children have given their lives to Jesus. Are they all serving him now? No, they're not. Not how we want our kids to serve the Lord. Mm. But they love the Lord. Um, if they're in trouble, they know who to call. <laughs> um, <laughs> you or the Lord? <laughs> Both. <laughs> They'll know our call on the Lord, that's for sure. Um, so Tyler's just had her little girl, Summer, and she's got a little boy. And then our third daughter, Kayla, she's here in Perth. Um, she's working here. She's not married. She's with you? No, she's in her own house. She's okay. 25. Mm -hmm. And then Nikita, our youngest daughter, has just got married. So she and um, Chris, her husband, they are serving the Lord. And Nikita was born here? Nikita was born in England. England. Nice. Um, so they're here, they're serving the Lord in um, Butler at Kingsway, uh, King, Kingdom City. They okay. both serve in the church there. Beautiful. So, yes. And you've established a ministry called No Limits. Yes. So No Limits Perth was um, established in 2015. Mm -hmm. along with two police officers. Um, I'd always had a heart to help other people, even when we were in England in the church. Yeah. God always provided like that. He would provide the stuff before I knew I needed it. Um, so we established in the England, it was just called Helping Hands. Yes. And things would just arrive and people would say, I have a microwave, and I'd say, what for? And the next day someone would phone me going, oh, you, don't, you don't know anyone with a microwave. Uh, um, and that's really was the real beginning of that sort of journey. Yeah. So when we came to Australia a few years down the line, um, I had um, I started working for a home education company, the same one that my children were doing. Yes. Um, I had about 500 families who I was taking care of as the parent mentor. Um, so I had a big network of people that I knew. Would you recommend homeschooling? people, 100%. Yeah? 100%. Wow. Um, and um, and every time I used to hear about a disaster, a fire, a flood or whatever, I would just put it on my social media and just call out to the community and say, look, there's five or six people in this family. They're starting with nothing. And the community would just come leave stuff at my front door. 24 hours later, whole house is furnished. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it started. You're probably an interior designer too. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Um, I'll, I'll have to invite you to set up our, uh, <laughs> our uh, new studio. Oh, very good. Uh, soft furnishings and stuff. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But, um, so you, you um, gather 
goods, uh, household goods, uh, white goods. Um. So I established No Limits to, uh, Perth with two police officers. Mm-hmm. None of us had ever met each other beforehand. Um, the one police officer had moved somebody into safety with a child. Mm-hmm. And we had, she had heard that I helped people in the community and contacted yep. me. Um, and we had um, met with Belinda, who's the other police officer. They also didn't know each other in South Africa, so we were all strangers, but we all had the same heart to... All South Africans. Wonder, all South Africans, all wanting to reach out to people in the community. Uh, so as police officers, they couldn't obviously give out all the information, but for me, I had the contacts. Yes. So when we discussed, why don't we just start something random mm-hmm. on Facebook, um, I don't think we had any idea what was The overwhelming... Ahead. So before we even met, I remember speaking to our pastor, Piet, mm-hmm. and um, Lisa. We had coffee at 6 o'clock one morning uh, with Andy before he went down to work. And I said, guys, I don't know what's happening. I just feel like the Lord is going to start something. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. I'm meeting with two policemen next Thursday, and I don't know what's going to happen. And Piet said, oh, you know, there's actually a lady in our church um, she really has a heart for the homeless. You know, you should get hold of her. And then he said, actually, she's very busy. She's a project manager. No, maybe, maybe not. And then my phone rang and it was 6.30 in the morning. And I picked it up and it was the lady he was speaking about. I didn't even know who she was. Yeah. And she said, Janine, you don't know me, but I'm in the same church as you. And I was praying this morning and I was, I was reading about Joseph and God just told me clearly, don't sign your contract today because I'm supposed to sign a new contract for over East. But God has told me to contact you and to follow you, whatever you're going to be doing. <laughs> and I said, well, I haven't told anybody that I'm doing anything because this is just something that I feel God's doing, but I don't know. She said, I need to come see you. I need to come see you. So I said, all right, well, you're not going to believe me, but I'm actually not at home, but I'll be <laughs> home in 20 minutes. And um, Andy and I, we couldn't believe it. Yeah. It just happened at that very moment that he was telling us about her. In 20 mm. minutes we went home and she said, I don't know what's happening, but I just know that whatever you do, I'm going to be right there to help you. Mm. And um, she was part of our board. Wow. We, um, we started a little Facebook group. Yeah. Within three weeks we had more than 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, originally it was going to just be for victims of domestic violence we had all come from a background where we were hurt and we didn't have the, the help that yeah. we needed yeah. and we realised there must be a gap somewhere somewhere. Yeah. but we were in a position where we could take the community and say let's help this person and they were I had been doing it already Yeah. and um, and all of a sudden we started getting cries for you know I need food um, I need to leave my husband or um, I'm I've got a very sick child. We don't live here. We've come from the country. And all of a sudden, all these messages started coming to us and we had no idea what we were doing. We were just taking each one and going, yes, we can help you. No, we can't help you. Yeah. Um, and that's how it started. Wow. And, we and today you're helping um, so today, about a dozen people a week. So today we've been um, established for over six years now. Yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of vehicles. Mm. Um, and we are actually, our service um, extends out to about 76 external organizations, all the government um, agencies. There's different churches, schools, hospitals, um, homeless services, um, all that type of thing. They just so, come in and ask for goods? Or? So they send us an email and saying this is the situation of the family and we can say yes, we can help them or no, we can't. So, so we, is it mainly furnishing or is it both food, toiletries? So we do food three days a week. We've got a food distribution. Hampers or food greens? Food hampers, both. Okay. We do food hampers, um, fruit, veggies, meat, mm-hmm. um, that sort of stuff. Um, and then we do all different things, toiletries, clothing, furniture, wow. Um, school stationery. Abs- this we call we have what's called a wraparound service. Wow! So if somebody started with nothing but their clothes on their back, yeah. we would be able to set them up to start off. Oh, that's beautiful. Andre uh, Oberholzer mentioned a little bit about what you guys are doing. I had a meeting with him, and he did some volunteering, uh, and Indeed. he was just thrilled. He just loved, you know after what he's done also with um, uh, YWAM. 
Absolutely. Yeah, just compliment to that. Let's talk legacy. <laughs> what would you like to be remembered by? The heart of God. Heart of God. The kindness of God when we don't deserve it. Mm. You know, we choose people. Mm. We look at somebody and we we'll say, we make a decision about them. But God does not work like that. Mm. He chooses who he chooses. And it's not the most lovable people that he chooses. But if we don't come with the heart of God, with zero judgment, yeah. um, I wouldn't do what I do. Mm. I absolutely love the people he chooses. And I realize the biggest thing out of everything is that nobody chooses um, to go down the wrong road. There's always somehow some trauma of childhood, uh, some trauma somewhere in their childhood mm. um, that people turn out the way they do. And we are all broken somewhere. You know, I listened to a podcast recently about this. And some of the greatest achievers in the world have got where they did because they had trauma. That's right. So, you know, we think of trauma as being the worst thing that could ever happen to a child. But unfortunately, we don't realize that God can turn it around for good. Because all the grit and resilience develops and uh, the ability to push through. And there's people... To get to a stage where they realize that they have no limits. <laughs> there is absolutely no limits. There's absolutely so, no limits um, to that. And you, you, can you, can't, you can't develop resilience and grit in a comfort zone. No. There has to be a lot of opposition. And uh, yeah, it breaks you, but it makes you. You can't help anybody unless you've lived it. Mm. And that's the beauty part of it. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I've learned so Thank much you. from you today. And I'm sure our listeners have done the same. <laughs> Thank you. Well, what a story, eh? <laughs> you know, when, uh, when, when we first start talking with someone here at Kingdom Stories, you never know what you get, you know. And I'm sure that at the beginning of this story, you never uh, envisaged uh, what was about to unfold. But the beauty is that each story has its own uh, way as it develops its own journey because our lives are so different. Yet God, throughout all this, you know, he looks after us and he provides for us and he brings us home eventually. Yes, we may have scars, we may have suffered and lost, you know, a lot of time and energy and opportunities, but we do make it back because his love just pulls us back. So today I just want to encourage you, um, whether you yourself are struggling or are in a dark place or you have children or somebody close to you who's quite far away from the Lord, just keep pressing in prayer and keep believing God will bring him back. And just as Janine did and surrendered to the Lord and so did Andy, her husband, they've managed to get through and they are on the other side now. <laughs> they are blessing other people and they are helping other people and that's just a beautiful blessing. Do look them up if you're in Perth. The ministry is called No Limits. Um, and uh, I just pray that you realize that we have no limits. In, uh, when we are with Christ. We are limitless in the way we love people, in the way we care for people, in the way we share the gospel, and the way we live our lives for the King. So I really pray that this encourages you, and I pray that you share it with other people in your wider circle so they can be uplifted and helped along the path. We look forward next time to see you at Kingdom Stories from Down Under. Thank you for joining us on Kingdom Stories from Down Under. We'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and share these stories with your wider community. And remember, every story is worth sharing, including yours.